0: dedicated to Henry Farman. In the years of the primal court, from the dawn of terrestrial birth, man mastered the mammoth and thought, man was the lord of the earth. He made him an hollow skin from the heart of an tree. He compassed the earth therein, and man was the lord of the sea. He controlled the vigorous steam, he harnessed the lightning for fire, he drove the celestial team, and man was the lord Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Seems like almost my catchphrase now. This is Agitators Anonymous. This is Alan Averill. However I may find you. Welcome to episode fifteen. Who knew we would get so far? Certainly not I. Um So, the last episode seems to have gone down pretty well. It's an episode about Alistair Crowley. And this is kind of the path that I'm going to, the left-hand path that I'm going to kind of try and traverse now for the next few episodes, which is to take sort of historical looks at certain characters, a kind of a deep dive about maybe people who have had an influence over our metal scene, I say our surreptitiously, I suppose, is that the right word? Well, anyway, regardless. Crowley. If he is the genuinely malign and dark shadow that hangs over 1960s counterculture, over heavy metal, it is a little bit more complicated to understand, and certainly we can point to a genuinely, as I said, malign, negative, evil, some would say, intention to his life and his lifestyle. Perhaps, as a counterbalance, the more vaudevillian, the more burlesque stylings of Anton Sander-Levay is what I'm gonna look at, and the Church of Satan. realistically more influential in a way because I think it's easier to understand on face value but we're going to take a look at the life and the origins of the Church of Satan but the life of Anton LaVey Um, so here's to my teenage self thank you for showing me this uh this path to illumination and ruining my life. Yes, of course. And also, as I said before, welcome to the final stages. The uh, the fat Elvis of my career. Uh, this would appear to be it as we enter year 15 of lockdown. Anyway, all right, let's do it. In nomine satanus... Lucifer, excelsis Dei. In the name of our most exalted God, Satan, Lucifer, I command thee to come forth. Come forth. And bestow these blessings of hell upon us. Come forth. By these names. Anton Sando lave and the Church of Satan. Yes, this podcast probably won't win me... Um, any plaudits from the Irish Arts Council and won't have me on daytime TV. Although in fairness that did become a staple of LeVay's fame. His many TV appearances in the early eighties connected to the Satanic Panic. So when um, we do we must separate though. Some of you may have seen the documentary on the Satanic Temple on Netflix. I might go and look at What they represent—it's not the same as the Church of Satan. I also might try to see if I can find somebody from the Satanic Temple to interview. Might be interesting. Anyway, so Anton Sander-Lavey was born in Chicago in 1930. Um, His obviously his name is not Lavey; it's Levy, and he was born to um, Georgian Ukrainian. Parentage, it would seem. So he moved, his early life was spent in San Francisco and I think this shapes a lot of what would come to represent the Church of Satan. I, I think that whereas someone like Crowley was also, I keep using the phrase smoke and mirrors, Crowley also embodied many of this form of self-aggrandization and um, a lot of the things about Crowley are true, you know, th- looking through his travel documents or whatever you want to call it like this, looking through the way he lived, for example, the 1930s. It's, it is insane, but he did go to all these countries and he did tar- partake in all these rituals. LeVay seems to have been almost a complete to have completely fabricated his early life. Um, He claims to have been a lion tamer, um, an organist at a circus. He claims at 16 to have run away, more or less, to join the circus. And one of his great points of view that he based some of his theories, theories, I say, um, and this is going to become clear as I begin to pick apart um, his influences, how now looking back on it i can see it was tailor made for uh, it's tailor made for a teenage way of looking at the world and i'll explain what i mean by that because obviously i bought the book again in tower records in 1990 as a teenager so i can i picked it out of the bookshelf in order to do this podcast and reread it for the first time in 30 years and I'll come to that. But I can see why it appealed to my 15, 16-year-old self. Because superficially, that's the sort of level it's aimed at. Um, anyway, so let's let's continue down this left-hand path. Boom, left-hand path. Yes, let's continue down this path. LeVay claims to have been, to to have observed while in the circus, how the men on a Saturday night, lusted after their female performers lusted after the women became loose and leery but yet on Sunday would be penitent and go to the church where he also played the organ looking for absolution and this is one of the things that keeps happening throughout his early life I mean it, the, the movie LA Confidential I think has a character who might be based on LeVay, at least it looks like to me um, there's a true crime photographer. There's a there's a kind of irritating character in LA Confidential who seems to be at the scene of every crime to take photos and sell it to the press and who goes about telling tales behind the authorities' backs. And this seems to have been something of LeVay's early life. Um, he claims to, have, for example, have had an affair with Marilyn Monroe when she was a dancer at a burlesque house. But... There's no evidence to suggest that she danced at the Mayan theatre. And those people who knew Marilyn Monroe claim it never happened. So, this seems to have been, again, the backstory. His biography was then later recanted by a book in the mid 90s that basically said that, yeah, the backstory was created out of thin air. So, it's unlike someone like Crowley where you can pinpoint to very definite movements. It's rather hard to pin down the early Anton LaVey, but it's for sure that the heady world of 1960s San Franciscan artistic, cultural, musical society was what influenced him, who seems to have been a... The 60s county counterculture is almost what created the Church of Satan. LeVay was known to have a a pet leopard called Zoltan. And he would drive around the city in a hearse. So his early life, when he moved to San Francisco, um, he studied criminology at the City College of San Francisco. And he seems, the biggest influence realistically, I think, upon what the Church of Satan became was his work as a psychic investigator. He seems to have basically become a almost, like I said, this L.A. Confidential style character. He claims to have worked for the San Francisco Police Department um, for three years where they would refer 800 calls to him and he would deal with elements of the paranormal. I suppose you could say that if he was on the TV, he would be on one of those ghost investigating, ghost hunting programs that are on in the middle of the night on UTV. Well, if you're not listening in the UK, that means nothing to you. But you get what I mean. But yet, there appears to be no record substantiating his claim that he did work for the San Francisco Police Department. It's all very obscure, but not fascinatingly obscure, I find, as in the case of Crowley. It's, I think, an awful lot to do with this post-Second World War movement in the 1960s, the, the countercultural rebellion that was moving through society. And it was clear, it's clear, at least to me, looking at a sort of overview of his life that what San Francisco came to represent, the music that was coming out at the time, drug culture, the m- praising of, how do we say, personal liberty that embodied the 1960s counterculture was something LaVey threw his hat in the ring with or threw his leopard skin hat in the ring with. However, at the same time, what the what the Church of Satan became is one of the most um, oddly and incredibly influential movements of the 20th century, countercultural movements of the 20th century. It still enjoys incredible popularity i think an awful lot of it is down to do with simple marketing i mean it's just that sigil of baphomet that circular pentagram with the goat in the middle is so iconic in a pop culture way it's it's iconic beyond the limitations of the book which i have in front of me here um which let's be honest reads like a teenager on adderall most of it there are some most definite truths inherent in it. A form of secular humanism, a form of reasonably rational atheism or something like this that's at the heart of it. But yet it's all bluff and bluster. It, it works its way through the seven deadly zins and absolves sloth. And it's a mishmash of random thoughts that every now and again hit the nail on the head. And I think they hit the nail on the head enough to pivot the book, if you will, um, to have a small port in a storm of making sense, of sense-making. And that is what appealed most definitely to my teenage self reading it. As I said in the last podcast, I definitely would have considered myself a teenage Satanist. I will open one page and it says, the Roman god Lucifer was the bearer of light. The Roman god Lucifer. It's full of... It's most definitely that LeVay wanted to separate his thesis, his treatise on Satan, I think, from its European cultural and historical inheritance. He barely mentions Crowley, yet to, yet he was born in 1930. He was born more or less just after Crowley had been in the USA. And there's no denying you couldn't have grown up without and been interested in the occult without hearing of the influence of Crowley he picks he picks Norse mythology as the casting of the runes of Ragnar Redbeard and his Might is Right which you may have to Google and have a look up randomly picks that and creates a template um, within the book that kind of doesn't really make sense to pluck a hodgepodge of European pre-Christian mythology and sort of magically and I I use that word sparingly let's call it artistically let's call it as a snake oil salesman in a way that he realistically was I used that phrase in the previous podcast but the influence still reaches long into modern society years and years later the one thing that's very clear to me looking at the early origins of the Church of Satan it began for example in 1966 in 1966 he the early let's say the couple of years before 1966 he was a Wurlitzer player at bars he used to play um, the organ as the backdrop for burlesque and according to his own mythology Volpurgus knocked april the 30th 1966 he formed the church of the church of satan ritualistically shaved his head allegedly in the tradition of ancient executioners and declared that as day is the year one or that year is the year one however detractors and cynics point out that this would appear to be inspired by an episode of the TV show The Wild Wild West which had an episode called The Night of the Druid's Blood which came out the week before LaVey declared this and in that it starred uh, comedian Don Rickles as an evil magician and a satanic cult leader and called Mephistopheles and it would appear that LaVey pops up In our, uh, with this aesthetic almost completely lifted from the show one week later and declares it the year zero. And it's this kind of theater that seems to appear or appeal to that mid 1960s Height Asprey San Franciscan counterculture. But yet the odd thing was that LeVay was very anti drugs. He seems to have been quite conservative in his world view he never dabbles or appears to dabble in drugs his interviews are very lucid are very almost lacking in the drama and theatre and hubris or dastardly skullduggery you might imagine from a Crowleyan figure they do seem to be, they have elements of high camp, at least in the aesthetic of the early church of Satan with their nude altars. There's a very strange documentary in 1970 called Satanis, which is worth a look. And as is the style of many old documentaries, it, it fascinates us now because the the, the camera movements are so Slow. The passages that unfold, mindless interviews with people with not much to say, who are just like, "I was born in the Midwest, and I done seen my brothers." Blah blah blah. It's and the interviews are interminably dull, and they all. It seems like a sort of a schmaltzy Tupperware party. Um, I maybe I'm being too cynical. Okay, well let's let's hear him explain something. Well, it occurred to me for many, many years that, that there was a uh, large grave area between psychiatry and religion that uh, was untapped, and no religion had ever been based on man's carnal needs or his fleshly pursuits. All religions are based on abstinence rather than indulgence, and all religions, therefore, have to be based on fear. Well, we don't feel that fear is necessary to base a religion on, <clears throat> the fact that Religions for thousands of years have been uh, telling people what they should do and what they shouldn't do, according to the basic whims of a person who might be running the show, is very understandable. We're realists, we Satanists, but we also feel that a person has to be good to themselves before they can be good to other people. I mean, do we place... We certainly could not place LaVey in the pantheon of evil cult leaders along with Manson or something like that. He doesn't seem to have had a violent influence or, a, as I said, a malign influence over the people that followed him. It often seems like the watching the videos of the Church of Satan or the watching the, the filmings of the Church of Satan's rituals and mass that there was an element, as I said, of burlesque and vaudeville to the whole thing, of circus performance, um, of a hodgepodge of theosophies that were pulled from left and right there's he references Nietzsche but you don't feel that he's really understood Nietzsche particularly but he's trying to use Nietzsche as a intellectual European benchmark Ayn Rand comes into play um, he also uses the whole of the second half of the book the whole of the second half of the book even more so is John Dee's Enochian key. Inexplicably John D was he was a mathematician, an astronomer, um, a teacher and an occultist, but he was an alchemist, which so but this is 15 the middle of the sixteenth century and LaVey inexplicably plucks him from the 16th century. And places him at the back, literally the whole of the second half of the book is just about John D's Enochian Key, which he proclaims it to be um, some sort of previously hidden occult reference point. But it makes no, it makes no sense realistically as to any of the, compared to all of the statements in the first half of the book. Wanted, God, dead or alive. It is a popular misconception that the Satanist does not believe in God. The concept of God as interpreted by man has been so varied throughout the ages that the Satanist simply accepts the definition which suits him best. Man has always created his gods rather than his gods creating him. God is to some benign, to others terrifying. To the Satanist, God, by whatever name he is called or by no name at all, is seen as the balancing force in nature and not being concerned with suffering. Okay, on the face of it, yeah. Satanism represents kindness to those who deserve it instead of love wasted on ingrates. It's full of this kind of, there's a list of infernal names, the four crowned princes of hell. Like I said, it's it's a, there are elements and sentences and sentiments in it where you can read and go, yeah, you shouldn't feel guilty for who you are. Yes, explore your, latent sexuality whichever way it may take you all these kind of things are proclaimed in the book but as i said the whole second half of it is very very strange that he's linked random european elements into it and you do get the impression especially when you read it there are words that don't really make sense And I think the plucking of John Dee from history 500 years before, as opposed to maybe observing Crowley or McGregor Mathers or other 20th century occultists who would have been a more relevant frame of reference. I think what he was trying to do was to trying to, I suppose now you would say, satanic virtue signal to a form of intellectual... European inheritance maybe he just stumbled upon something he assumed no one would know which they probably wouldn't however it was as, a, it was as a, an excitable teenager who was getting into Morbid Angel and all this kind of early death metal who read John Dee's Enochian Key with fascination because it seemed so otherworldly but yet at the same time it seems to make sense that you can find pictures of LeVay with people connected to the Weird Tales Science magazine. Um, There's a picture of him and Clark Ashton Smith, who was a a contemporary of Lovecraft. So it's through all these kind of things that you begin to connect the dots. He was something of a celebrity already in the mid-1960s in San Francisco, as I said, for his paranormal research and live performances as an organist. I mean, you can go back and listen to his albums, Satan Takes a Holiday. And it's it sounds very quaint and odd to these ears now. I mean it was at the time it was sort of outdated. Um, a bit like the music you there do whatever that is. Oh so that's you know what I mean. The thing that you would watch in our period of American-U.S. cultural hegemony, um, you would have seen in 80s teen movies during the ice hockey match, whatever that is called. That's the kind of thing, that's where he came from. Anyway, what am I talking about? Yeah, the satanic mass. Satan takes a holiday. Go and have a listen if you want. He also claims that... The Church of Satan was a direct descendant of, or at least an inheritor of the satanic tradition of the Knights Templar. So not only do we take John Dee from the 16th century, we go back even further to the Knights Templar. I mean, this is, we're talking about the Knights Templar, who I should probably do a podcast on as well. You would notice I was wearing a t-shirt of the Knights Templar in my chat with Adi from Solstafir if you were keen-eyed. And this is 1120. This is the 12th century. This is we're going back to the Crusades, um, and there doesn't really appear to be any frame of reference. There doesn't appear to be any. Um, I suppose what kind of intellectual lineage could you take from 12th century 19 19- Crusaders through to 1966 San Franciscan? counter-pop culture, however. LaVey was a showman. He was a born showman, and I think that this is what made him so magnetic. Like with Crowley, you can find that people did... I wouldn't say they flocked to him the same way as somebody like Crowley. It seemed to me that people who even knew they were being done harm to still flocked to Crowley. They were unable to resist his aura, his magnetism, um, which is something more genuinely dark. Whereas, LeVay seems to have been more of a showman in some sense. Well, maybe not. A showman is the wrong word. But he seems to have been the the social glue for these um, burlesque parties. But yet, at the same time, he pulled together he pulled together enough writings and made enough sense to become one of the biggest countercultural influences of the twentieth century. You couldn't you couldn't deny it. I mean, even for us as us, as heavy metal fans, every one of us who's worn a t shirt with a pentagram on it probably owes some debt to the Church of Satan. I have it tattooed on my arm. Um whether it's Marduk, whether it's Emperor, whether it's Marilyn Manson, whether it's him, all of these elements owe some debt to the Satanic Bible, to Anton LaVey, to the Church of Satan, which familiarized 1960s counterculture. And it perfectly fits into the canon of the form of individualism that was latent in the 1960s, that people were aspiring to. I think that it's 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 very interesting and it's difficult to observe for us now many many years later but there was definitely an element of if you think about the second world war and you think about the the era that came after the second world war in the 1950s the even the word teenager teenage it was never really used to describe a cultural or musical Influence. In the nineteen fifties, I think they were just realistically there were as young adults, but teenage youth culture wasn't something that really appeared until the late fifties. So you have this entire period of about fifteen years, let's say from nineteen forty five to nineteen sixty, where young people were just considered, I think, looking back, I mean, what do I know, of course, but observationally they inherited their parents jobs they moved into this place of work the full weight of marketing and um, the selling of individuality as a commodity was not in full effect and it took a while for things to disseminate in that form after the Second World War and so once you come into the late 50s early 60s you can see the birth of pop music pop culture of this countercultural revolution, that young people are not happy to simply inherit the work of their parents, inherit the farm, inherit um, traditions only based on what their parents were saying, reading their their history. In that sense, they wanted to create a new history, and something like the Church of Satan makes. Complete sense for a 1960s counterculture culture which is based on a form of individual liberty, a personal and youthful exuberance that, okay, we can point out is latently naive in its outlook. And I would say the same thing 50, 60 years later, but that's the very nature of being a teenager this assumption that you are at the center of a movie starring yourself about your relationship to the whole world it's it's almost this heliocentric view of the universe moving around only you and I think that's part of the nature of being a young person a teenager I was a awful teenager and it makes sense that I would have read the satanic bible and thought yeah this speaks to me this speaks to me right now right here I'm going to create my own narrative before you ultimately add other structures to that and realize that maybe that's not entirely the way the world works. But yet it's this idealism that forms the backbone of the 1960s. I mean, you can open any page. There is no greater sexual pleasure than that derived from association with someone you deeply love. If you are sexually well-suited, if you are not suited to one another sexually, though it must be stressed that lack of sexual compatibility does not indicate lack of spiritual love take that on its face value and that seems like quite a reasonable sentiment how much of it was typical cult leader behavior which is older men trying to get their end away with younger women how much of it is the smoke and mirrors involved in in a form of sexual show and tell which is about power prestige influence and let's be honest also satan doesn't need much marketing He's been an attractive figure for hundreds and hundreds of years, and Leve perfectly channeled into that. So, more power to him on those terms, I suppose, because in an age in the 1960s which was championing sexual liberty and individual liberty above civic responsibility, which was something that was the evident um social temperament of the 30s the 40s and the 50s it it makes sense that this is what they were championing however you dig down a bit deeper into some of it and you will find that despite his elements of conservatism as a as a as a person the church of satan is very open to bisexuality to homosexuality And this echoes back to Crowley's own sentiments on sexuality. Um, And I think this, this appealed very much to people in the 1960s, and as it does now, as it does now. But, you know, LeVay is the architect of his own. He is attempting to drive the narrative as well. And, you know, he claims to have been consulted on Rosemary's Baby, but yet people involved in the making of the movie have no say that that's also a lie so what does the church of Satan what do they actually stand for and I think the the principles are sort of simple to understand really it's about the rejection of moralism the rejection of the moralism of Christianity that you don't believe in an actual corporeal God Um, and you make some quite rational and frankly motivational I suppose you want to call them points like I said which would appeal to this young, teenage, impetuosity of youth filled mindset. To be quite frank, there isn't a hell of a lot of meat to the bones, really. There isn't, there's a reason why the Church of Satan and its theosophies, it's, it was never considered an intellectual movement, it was never considered or even written about much by mainstream scholars. It always, because there isn't really a hell of a lot to write about, it always existed on the periphery of modern pop culture connected to sensationalism. And in the 1970s, I think there's one very interesting but very often unobserved thing that Leve does is that in 1975 he makes one of the most interesting um and interesting moves and something that's not really reported that much. And obviously after the heady days of the 1960s he moves into the 70s and maybe his influence is waning or maybe his financial means are slowing down but certainly he takes an element of the scientological view on revealed revelation i mentioned this in the last podcast but if you paid to the church of satan you paid as a subscription member you could be revealed more truths you could ascend the ranks and it's this similarity with Scientology that is quite striking at least to me looking back through the notes and that's what Hubbard did Hubbard were no doubt was influenced by Crowley and it's maybe he was even some form of a contemporary of LeVay on some terms but very obviously at some degree they all figured out well how can I make money from this also on top of getting access to young women through my smoke and mirrors and In the mid-1970s, Crowley, LaVey, decides that you can pay to gain greater access to revealed truths. And I think this is a very interesting development. And then that takes us sort of to the end of the 1970s. And the satanic panic is just lurking around the corner. And I think that revives LaVey's career. So, the early 1980s has LeVay becoming a regular talk show host. You've probably seen YouTube clips of people like Gigi Allen, of various other people on these Donahue, Donahue, Donahue Show, The Tonight Show, all this kind of stuff, arguing about punk rock or Satanism or whatever else. And I could almost probably devote a podcast to the Satanic Panic and what that is. But as an aside, let's take a look at that. In the early to mid-1980s, there was this huge movement through the mainstream uh, media. Uh, All, how can we say, centered around an element of psychiatry about repressed memories um, where... This one famous book called Michelle Remembers, which is a, a story about a Canadian woman who, under hypnosis, revealed repressed memories of being abused by a satanic cult. Um, the author of the book was a priest. And the book just caught on like wildfire. It just became, it. you know, there was going to be a, a film about it with Dustin Hoffman or something like this. And it sold millions and millions of copies. And it seems to have inspired inspired me- hundreds of copycat cases. There were people who went to prison for 20, 30 years for being accused of being members of satanic cults connected to um, childcare centres in... California there was even police chiefs who went on to talk about tens of thousands of kids going missing across the United States every year sacrificed to s- satanic cults and it gripped the public's imagination that these underground satanic networks were stealing children f- from everywhere and that this ritual abuse was going on right under their noses in every suburban house the next-door neighbours were Satanists and so of course LeVay was wheeled out every now and again onto one of these talk shows to try and set the record straight or to try and represent the other side and he seems to represent at this time he seems to me at least a bit weary weary of his own of the inheritance of his own myth as if he really enjoyed the 60s quite a lot and had grown tired of dressing up a bit like this in the 80s. At least it seems to me like that. But the satanic panic linked in heavy metal at in the PMRC, who I mentioned before, the Parents Music Resource Centre, we see Judas Priest are being taken to court for backmasking satanic messages in Better By You, Better Than Me, and um, kids who tried to kill themselves, who hadn't managed to. The parents were suing Judas Priest for backward messages. We have Dungeons and Dragons as being, I kid you not, if you've never looked into it, Dungeons and Dragons, the game which was created in 1974, by early 1980s, it is being mentioned in government as in the USA, as being a, a, a malign and poisonous influence on youth. There are outreach centers Religious outreach centers trying to take kids away from playing Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, if you've watched Stranger Things, you'll see the kids are playing Dungeons and Dragons. I played it myself when I was 11 or 12 or 13 years old. But most definitely, even in Ireland, um, we're briefed on the satanic dangers of Dungeons and Dragons. I kid you not. The rolling of a dice. But this was the where this was the early 1980s. This is where things were. And then you mix in, of course, Venom and Slayer and Wasp and all this kind of shockingly um, extreme imagery that heavy metal was appropriating, which included the pentagram and Baphomet. Look at the cover of Welcome to Hell, Venom's mission statement that started everything. And it's the sigil of Baphomet from made famous by the Church of Satan. You're beginning to connect all the dots here now and see what's happening. Add to this the element of the late 1970s, the Son of Sam. The late 1970s, as I said before, in a kind of offhand way, was the golden age of serial killing. And I think there was a very great feeling of unease in suburbia that your next-door neighbour might be a serial killer. It, it gripped the public's imagination. The Night Prowler, the Night Stalker, these kind of figures. And you can see how in the shadows it wasn't far, wasn't a step too far to start to connect Satanism, to start to draw a line between that and Dungeons and Dragons and early heavy metal. I know that Stranger Things seems like a cutesy TV show and I'm almost... Almost the same age at the same time as the kids in it. But in 82, 83, 84, um, as a pre-adolescent, most definitely you heard about, as I said, organized um, school meetings where your parents came home and said to you, are you listening to Slayer? Are you listening to whatever else? I mean, even my own Slayer records when I was an adolescent got me into trouble with my parents with school, Iron Maiden records, Judas Priest. Were you playing Dungeons and Dragons? And it was part of this panic, this moral panic of the time, which I think there is a moral panic now, only it's caused by Twitter. We may get into that. <laughs> I get into that almost every podcast. But what plays Anton LaVey maybe as, a, as the tired, um, you know, the tired figure figurehead, of this, who's been drawn out of retirement in the 1980s to appear on these TV talk shows and try and put the humanistic element of Satanism back into it, to to, to haul it back from um, the place where mainstream media was trying to bring it. Subsequently, all of these books that were released in the 1980s were proved to be false. This this idea of repressed mev- memories. There was no evidence. Nobody has ever uncovered really any evidence of these satanic cults that were sacrificing children or the ritual abuse that were claimed happening in the early 80s. They were all the product of, I think, an element of self-psychoanalysis that was the birth of an element of psychiatry in the early 80s that was, I think, the stepping stone for this SOMA society that we live in, where people were beginning to declare themselves on the spectrum and thus go to doctors and big pharma to self-medicate. And I think that this panic was inspired by an element of psychoanalysis or psychiatry that made things like repressed memories or dream interpretation almost seem real to people. And, of course, if you look at someone like L. Ron Hubbard and Scientology and how much, if any of you have ever been to the Scientology building in L.A., you will see there is an entire, um, there is entire rooms devoted to the lies of psychiatry. But yet Hubbard was using many of the same, Elements of control. So there's a Freudian backdrop to what's happening. There's a Freudian backdrop, but that's happening that you can connect to. I think elements of Crowleyanism, elements of Lavey and Satanism, and these are all sifted through this 1960s countercultural influence. And we get to the early to mid-1980s where society seems almost naively obsessed with these things. We look back now because for many of you who will have grown up, who will not have grown up before the Internet, back in the day, people got very simple, straightforward messages from the mainstream media. They didn't have the mistrust of all institutions of the state and media like they do now. And people took it on face value that Satan was real and he had an influence over kids through Dungeons and & Dragons. And it almost gave a second wind to the Church of Satan. But yet, it wasn't until the 1990s that, for example, Tower Records, like I mentioned in the last podcast, that I picked up a copy of the Satanic Bible with great glee as a 15-year-old or 16-year-old in 1990, 1991, and... Um, The book is now, I would imagine, out of print. It's out of copyright. Anybody can print it. And it must have sold millions of copies. I mean, the devil doesn't need much marketing. You can read Paradise Lost by John Milton or whatever and have sympathy for the devil, as I said in the last episode, that I always felt I had that. So LeVay's Satanic Bible, just with the sigil of Baphomet on the front, will sell itself. But it wasn't. On, I think. I think the 1980s. It was more of a midnight caller situation. LeVay was unearthed to come on to all these U.S. talk shows in the 80s. My child has been obsessed by the devil since blah blah blah, and he would come on going. Well, I think that you know blah blah. Go on YouTube and do a little bit of rummaging around, and you'll find interviews like this. You know, he. LeVay doesn't have the let's call it the evil magnetism of a Charles Manson or a Jim Jones or a David Koresh or he doesn't seem to be a manic cult leader who is bent on death and destruction or on forcing his followers to perform some dastardly deed. There doesn't seem to be an almost fascist hierarchical structure of power and influence throughout the Church of Satan. He seems to be something of a benign figure. And maybe that speaks to his character that despite creating something so culturally important, he doesn't really seem to have maybe grasped the potential for its economic and social and cultural influence over the rest of the world, not just california he hated heavy metal he thought heavy metal was nonsense uh, and he often sought to distance himself from it he wasn't into drugs as i said in fact many of his views of everything outside sexuality seemed to be quite seemed to be quite conservative so where does that leave us and let's call it the revival of modern satanism as you will see, maybe it's a good idea for me to do something on the uh, Satanic Temple and what they represent. The devil had a sense of humor. The devil has a sense of humor. And that was something that I think underneath Levey's lip curling and Ming the Merciless eyebrows and his general circus entertainer demeanor, he understood elements of kitsch. He understood um, the pomp and the circumstance, but not in a diabolical way as someone like Crowley. Even though Crowley was very much a a 20th century dandy, um, but a diabolical dandy, so to speak. LeVay never seemed to have any of that. He lacks I think a charisma to fully push people over the edge but instead he seems to have been a facilitator for other people to take what they want from the satanic bible to take what they want from the church of satan he doesn't seem to have had the megalomania the narcissistic egomania of many cult leaders in order to really push as I said his followers or the people who believed And believe in Satan over the over the edge, and I'm not sure if that speaks to his own understanding of the situation, if it speaks to his misunderstanding of the situation that he really didn't quite understand the power or the influence that he tapped into. He certainly doesn't. There certainly doesn't seem to be any documentary of his travel to Europe or his maybe doesn't seem to have any had any interest in travelling to the UK to give talks or speeches but yet the book itself in the 1990s or let's say in the late 80s was widely available throughout occult bookstores of which we had many in the UK and Ireland even in Ireland I mean um, with Primordial we have a song called The Alchemist's Head uh, which was the name of a bookstore in Dublin in the 1980s it's a rather in 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 joke or in reference um, which probably no one got. But there was a, a, a like a a cartoon or a comic book store which did have occult books in the late 80s. And I'm not sure that LeVay really understood the reach of his estate, so to say. The records remained... Um, his awful albums um, remained unpressed in the 1980s and 1990s, and they surely would have sold just stick the Siglo Baphomet on them and press them up. I'm sure people would have bought them. I, certainly tape trading, was overjoyed in 1991 or 2 to to finally get a tape of The Black Mass. And yeah, we played it. I played it. Um, Played it many more times than some demos I got at the time. So, it seems to me that there was there's lots of different ways of looking at it. It seems to me that this snake oil salesman of a raconteur created something that became a slow-burning social-cultural movement within the 20th century that mainstream intellectual or, as I said, um, theosophical um, society ignored and probably right Fully so, to some degree, leaving it to the religious right to try and oppose it or to try and frame it without them really understanding it. But what was there to understand? Superficially, the Satanic Bible, when you read it as a teenager, it is quite influential and it speaks to you on a, as I said, on 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 a level as the impetuosity of youth could only really ascertain in that It basically states, in no uncertain terms, believe in yourself. Don't believe in anything else. Don't feel guilty. Of course, on the face of it, this seems like pretty good advice, actually, for teenagers full of raging hormones and uncertainties and inadequacies. And there are plenty of young people now who could probably do with taking a few lines here and there. Of course to get to those lines you have to sift through a lot of nonsense but that's also part of the as I said the smoke and mirrors that envelop so much of the life of Anton LaVey um, was he a circus entertainer? probably not did he ever? did he have an affair with Marilyn Monroe? it's unlikely but he certainly developed or He certainly had a huge cultural influence over the 20th century. Whether he meant to or not, it's hard to say. It really is very, very hard to say. He pulled elements and influences from random places, as I said, from the Knights Templar, skips 300 years, to John Dee, mentions Norse mythology, but yet doesn't really seem to have much to say about Crowley, Roman, Greek mythology. You could pick so many holes in all of this, but I'm not sure that that's really the point. At least what it taught me as a teenager is, what I took from it was a form of self-actualization. It was, it was. I won't say a guidebook, definitely not that, But it was a small structure with which to lean into, which just basically said in this crazy, tumultuous time that you're living through, raging with hormones and, as I said, self-doubt, this gives you a little bit of discipline, structure and belief in yourself. And I think that's really all it can really boil down to is it's, It's uh, ethos is, um, don't feel guilty for who you are. What are we indeed talking about? So we're almost at an hour of just rambling about Anton LaVey. So maybe I'll leave the Satanic Temple for another podcast. And before, while I think of it, really, I mean, let's try and put it into cont- a little bit more heavy metal context. Um, at least one of the things that it appealed appealed to me so much about it, I think, was the fact that I was a an atheistic, non-religious young man who liked the fact that the devil, or was an adversary, but he was a a fictitious adversary. So it was a it was like a a focus for your energy you know as a, as a, or your agency is a better word in the world but you didn't subscribe to any religious structure so in a sense it had as it was a sort of immoral atheism or something like this which was very much went against elements of what we would call orthodox black metal of the 2000s because there seemed to be a very a form of primitivism a a form of actual medieval devil worship involved in 21st century black metal that at least left me on the shore um, I, I must resurrect pages from my old fanzine but you will find interviews with Moonspell and Necromantia discussing the structure or let's say the intellectual structure of black metal more as a atheistic concept or at least referencing the process of gnosis which i have talked about before as not having a destination but being a journey and the realization of that at a very um at a very early onset but yet black metal bands come out in the 2000s who seem to be saying the devil does exist satan does exists and we give praise to him and that seemed to me to be a form of primitivism that I couldn't really relate to because believing in that would mean that you would have to believe in the creation myth. It means that you would have to believe in the Bible. You would have to believe in an omnipotent force that created the universe. And as a person who rallied around science and always does and always did, this seemed to me to be um, anti-intellectual, anti-scientific, so on those terms, I suppose my um, identification with the devil as a, as a structure of adversary, as a a romantic figure of rebellion, um, throughout history, throughout literature, that's more what I identified with, and then some personal structures of self-overcoming and self-actualization which you could tie into anything else maybe it's keep fit maybe it's sports maybe it's learning another language whatever else it's a similar kind of mindset but it certainly wasn't reconcilable with the let's call it more medieval devil worshiping that came to embody black metal at least in the 21st century I probably should have got to that at the top of the podcast because maybe that's more interesting. But what I am going to do is a podcast about black metal, about Satanism, about how that has uh, the passages that you go through within that from a young man to middle age and how our observations on that might have changed. Anyway. What am I talking about? Okay, so Heavy Metal Heroes number two. Anton LaVey and the Satanic Bible, the Church of Satan. Hope that's been illuminating for you. Seek it out. Have a little look. Don't take it that seriously. All right. Alan Averill, Agitated Anonymous, episode 15, the Church of Satan and Anton LaVey. Remember... On Instagram, I am Nemthianga underscore primordial, N-E-M-T-H-E-A-N-G-A, which means he of the evil tongue, by the way, in Old Irish. Anyway, follow me on Instagram, and Patreon is slash Alan Aver with two capital A's. Right, let's get out of here. Metal never bends. Say thanks. Lucifer. Baleon. Leviathan. Hail Satan! Planning for your next trip?